0: All right. Our next guest, his life has been like a movie here recently. He's got a new book out to tell the story. It's called Disloyal. Michael Cohen, uh, attorney and fixer, former fixer for the president. What's going on, Michael? Thanks for your time.
1: Good morning, Gentry. Uh, Please also don't forget I have a podcast out now, too, called Mea Culpa that is just doing incredibly, incredibly well, which gives me a lot of hope that people listening to the things that I'm saying as we're entering into the final 30 days.
0: On the podcast, I heard you tell the story about being hired on the spot. The first night you meet Trump, all of a sudden, it seemed as though you were his number one guy. Can you tell us how that transpired so quickly?
1: Well, I had been doing some legal work for him uh, prior to that meeting, and that was, I talk about this in disloyal. The first one had to do with a, fight uh, regarding the taking over of the board of a building. The second one had to do with shutting down a failed company that Don Jr. had set up that was really um, getting under Trump's nerves. And then the third is he had asked me to review some documents regarding Trump Entertainment Resorts. I believe at that time it was the third uh, chapter 11 bankruptcy filing. Um, I went to give him an analysis. Uh, onto it, which we had used in a a board meeting, and present to him a bill. And it was at that meeting, it wasn't at night, it was actually in the middle of the day when he asked me to come over, that he asked me to walk away from the law firm, the white shoe law firm that I was a partner at, and to come work for him, offering me the position as executive vice president of the Trump Organization and special counsel to Donald J. Trump. I mean, it was a moment that I'll never forget. My, I remember my head was very dizzy from it. I mean, I had looked up to Donald Trump going back 20 plus years uh, to 1987 when I read his book, The Art of the Deal, twice, and I found a lot of similarities uh, between himself and myself in terms of an entrepreneurial spirit. So I was very interested in in the position. I thought it was. Uh, A great opportunity for me um, turned out to be the worst move that I ever
0: made. Yeah, you were on record saying that you would take a bullet for this guy. So obviously something went terribly wrong. What was that pivot moment that you realized, "Uh uh-oh, I've made a mistake?
1: So I remember telling that and having that um, interview with Emily Jane Fox of Vanity Fair at the time when I said that I was willing to take a bullet for him. And I was. I mean, I was deep into this cult-like atmosphere and completely brainwashed uh, into my loyalty for Donald Trump. What was the turning point is when I realized that it was Donald Trump who was pulling the trigger, and that was just unacceptable, and it was enough to pull me out of this trance that I was in, this spell, and it again, unfortunately, it was too late, and it basically cost me everything.
0: You actually got raided by the FBI. I read, uh, Michael. What brought all the heat from the feds? Was it like in the movies where they broke your door down and came in? It had to had to be a pretty scary moment. Can you take us through that day or night? Did you have the sense that they were so that the feds were in, on you? Yeah.
1: So no, I had no knowledge whatsoever, and it really wasn't scary. And I put out a tweet not not that much after when the president made a statement that you know that they knocked down my door and that they were that they roughed me up. It's absolutely not true. So let me tell you, law enforcement and the FBI, when they came in, they didn't break down the door. They knocked on the door. It was seven o'clock. They were kind enough to wait for my son, who had just left for his for school. He was a senior in high school at the time. They waited for him to leave. Uh, They knocked on the door. They knew that I had uh, multiple firearms. I was living in a hotel at the time because my next door neighbor flooded out our apartment and it was going through repairs. But I, you know, I have a full light. I had a full uh, concealed carry permit. So they knocked on the door. The the um, agent in charge said, "Mr. Cohen, please don't move." Um, you know, uh, we know that you have firearms. Where are they? I told them that they were sitting on the the table. Um, he said, please just wait here." Are they loaded? I said, "Yeah, they're loaded." Are they are they chambered? I said, "They are not chambered." He said, "Thank you." They took possession of the firearm, and they ended up giving it back to me. I then had to go. <laughs> surrender, which I thought was very interesting. But uh, it was not scary. They were professional. They were courteous. They, we actually spent many hours as they were going through. They took a whole bunch of documents and, and things from the, both my hotel, from my home, from my law office. I mean, it was the first time that I think in history that they raided the office, the law office of the personal attorney of the president thereby violating all forms of attorney-client privilege. But here's what I ended up figuring out while I was in prison, that there's no way in the world that Donald Trump didn't know that this raid was going on. There's no way in the world that the attorney general, at the time who I believe was Weissman, has the guts within which to stand up to Donald Trump and not tell him that they're going to raid the personal attorney of his personal attorney's law office, which is why, That night, he went on television, and he said, oh, yeah, they raided. I'm really disgusted that the FBI raided one of my lawyers. Now, all of a sudden, I became one of his lawyers. I mean, the guy knows exactly what he's doing. He is, as I write in the book, the single most disloyal human being on the planet who cares about no one or anything other than himself. He was looking to use me as a scapegoat in order to get away from All of the issues that he had specifically dealing with like the Russia um, collusion.
0: So, Michael, you eventually plead guilty. You're now serving your time. Uh, I believe they let you out because of covid. Are you still locked up right now? Are you currently calling us from your house or is this a collect call? Are we going to get charged back for this, Michael?
1: (laughs) No, I'm on home confinement. Okay, that's good. Uh, So there's no there's no charge back to you.
0: (laughs) Uh, so what, what did you learn at the end of that? Now, as you look in the rear view, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but you obviously made a mistake aligning yourself with Trump in, in your mind. Uh, but uh, what have you learned from this?
1: No, no. I want people to understand this. At the time that he asked me to come to work for him, Donald Trump is one of the most popular figures in America. He had a number one television show. He had buildings going up. We were acquiring golf courses. I mean, he was, you know... He was Donald Trump, the real estate guy. The mistake that I made is thinking that he would change to be a president for all Americans, not just his group of people, that he would elevate himself to the office of the president instead of denigrate the office of the president and debase it down to him and his really horrific personal traits. I mean, I actually expected that the first thing that the man would do when he became president was he would do an infrastructure bill, and that all of these different countries that pledged 250 million. now people forget about this. when he went on that Arab Emirates tour and they went to Riyadh and he got the, the, um, the Arab Emirates to pledge 250 million, the Japanese to pledge 250 million, the Saudis to pledge 250, he comes back and he says, "This is so easy." It's so easy. I go out for a week. I come back with $750, you know, billion dollars. Yeah, you take that, you put it on Wall Street, it becomes seven and a half trillion. Now, every American in the country has a job because we need to redo the entire infrastructure of this country. But no, no, he can't do that because he's sick in his head. What does he decide to do? The first thing he puts out is a Muslim ban. I said, I remember going to the Oval Office and sitting with him, and he asked me straight to my face, what did you think about the, um, the, about the Muslim ban? I said, Mr. Trump, what's wrong with you? We were supposed to do an infrastructure bill. You can't ban a religion from the United States. It's one thing if you want to say, well, you, you know, we can't have them coming in from Somalia. We can't have them coming in from Iran. What, that, that's understandable so long as you work with Congress on it, but you can't ban a religion from the country the whole thing was ill thought out it was done by steve miller and steve bannon and his comment to me is i will we'll try to get it right the next time huh michael that's I, not that's not the way in america an american president is supposed to
0: behave i hear a lot of disdain for our president uh, donald trump uh, when i listen to your podcast uh, you know you, you called his followers cult like uh a liar, a lot of negative things about President Trump, but I didn't hear a ton of positive or much talk about Joe Biden. I don't know if you've endorsed Joe Biden and his run at the presidency. What are your thoughts on the Biden campaign? And if so, why him?
1: Well, first of all, why him is because it's not Trump. I mean, it's not like there are a multi. It's amazing. We have, what, 350 plus million Americans. Um, Joe Biden is somebody that's been in politics for a long time. I voted for Barack Obama um, the first time around. I was interested in seeing what he was going to be able to do for the country. I think Joe Biden did a fairly good job as vice president during that time. I think the big distinction between Donald Trump and Joe Biden is really not so much without, without uh, by avoiding uh, any political talk. I think it's the character of the individual. Joe Biden has character. He has empathy for people. He's been through some terrible scenarios in his life, and he's even more empathetic today than he was in the past. Now, I had met Joe Biden, I think, when I was maybe 13, 14 years old. He was close to one of our neighbors and close friends who was the big supporter of Biden when he was, um, you know, uh, back, uh, you know, as a, uh, uh, what was a senator, uh, a governor of Delaware. Um, So I had met him there and, um, you know, my daughter is also friendly with his granddaughter um, for many years. So I have no problem with Joe Biden. But again, the big distinction between the two is one is devoid of empathy and the other is not. And as the president, you're not supposed to be just creating policy. That's what you have the Congress for. He's He's supposed to be the president for all people. And I believe Joe Biden is that person. And I believe that Donald Trump, again, cares for no one or anything other than himself.
0: You were his fixer for 10 years. Out of all that time, was there one moment where you saw any empathy out of this guy? I mean, is there one good bone in this guy's body? Because at one point you said you would take a bullet for him. I'm curious, is there anything good that you have to say about President Donald Trump?
1: No, I don't know. We're gonna have to. You have to give me some time to think about that one, and I'll <laughs> have to get back to you on it. At this moment, I yeah. At this moment, I'm really not so sure that I can think of one. I'm sure there's got to be one. I just
0: in, in ten point, years, th- not one, I guess. Uh, but you said on the podcast it was difficult for you to to write this book. Uh, which part was the hardest to get on paper? And is it helping you to talk about this kind of stuff and get it out? What you're doing right now? Well,
1: writing the book from the very first word to the last word. Was very difficult as I prepared the stories, um, you know, and and relived these these moments because of where I was at, staring at these eight inch by eight inch concrete cinder blocks, and wondering why I'm in for his dirty deed, and then reliving the whole pain of the plea, the forced plea, and then the the, the sentencing by Judge Pauly. I mean, the whole thing is just completely out of control. And there I am writing about this. So, yeah, it was both painful and cathartic at the same time. But I'm not asking for anybody's pity. I don't want this to be a pity party for Michael. I wrote this as a way to let your listeners and those readers and the people who listen to my podcast, I did it so that they could make an informed decision in November as to whether or not they think that Donald Trump is, is the right man to be the president for an additional four years. I give you enough information in there so that you understand the things that he's doing, why he's doing it, and what he's really thinking. Because that you don't know. When he stands up in front of the, uh, you know, in front of the people as he enters um, you know, the White House yesterday, it's a program. It's a show. It's The Apprentice Part 2. That's all that it is. And what my book does and what Maya Culpa does is it gives you a deep dive into the mindset of this narcissistic sociopath about the Trump derangement syndrome that so many of us are living through and the Trump derangement syndrome that I lived with for over a decade, which caused me to be loyal to him and allowed him to be the disloyal individual that he is, and uh, and me accepting
0: it. The new book is called Disloyal, available wherever you buy your books. Also, the podcast, Michael Cohen's Maya Culpa podcast, uh, Rosie O'Donnell joined him. Some members, uh, former members of Donald Trump's uh, White House staff, uh, very uh, compelling content on the podcast. And Michael, thanks uh, for your time, and hope to catch up with you again down the road. Be safe.
1: Yes, you as well, my friend. Thank you.